Welcome to Shrink for the Shy Guy. This is the show for you if you are sick and tired of being held back by fear, self-doubt, social anxiety, shyness, anything that's stopping you from you being you. I'm going to share the most powerful tools and resources that I've been discovering over the last 15 years on my journey to eradicate social anxiety and instill confidence, first in myself and then in every single person that I meet on my journey. You're going to learn these tools and how to apply them in your life now so that you can become the most free, powerful, bold, authentic version of you. Welcome to today's episode of Shrink the Shy Guy. I'm your host, Dr. Aziz, and I have a guest uh, that I'm very excited to talk with because there's a few conversations I've had with Nick, who I'll introduce in a minute, uh, that have left me very intrigued. So often for this show, I'll bring in uh, you know, a guest expert who's a, someone in the field of confidence, social anxiety. Uh, Nick is actually someone that I met through uh, as a colleague. We've worked together for number of years and he is a master in marketing and runs a team in communication so you might not think that would be the typical guest I would bring on but in my conversations with Nick I kept on thinking wow this there's a lot about the way that Nick approaches his life that is what I'm steering and guiding people towards a life of of confidence of betting on himself of taking risks um so uh Nick uh, Carlson, welcome to the show. Uh, Nick runs a marketing agency called Vanguard, and um, we could explore some of the nuances of what you do, but I know from my personal experience with it that it's a stellar uh, company and the best experience I've ever had with a marketing company and um, from the from the ground up in terms of how things were built, communication, design, uh, care. Um, so uh, extraordinary company. We'll get into some of that and some of the risks you might have taken in business but also get to know you um, underneath and, and learn from you as well. So welcome to the show, Nick. Dude, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to, uh, to be here. And I know, like you said, we've worked together for a number of years and, and your mission is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. So I'm excited to, to share. Yeah. Well, let's, let's dive right in. So, um, you know, what really stood out to me was, uh, you know, cause when you start working with someone for marketing and business, you don't go into like, what was your childhood like, you know? Right. But you know, <laughs> we, we would have these periods where we would be chatting and talking and all of a sudden share things about our lives. And you shared something with me about being, I don't know what age, like nine and basically being like, I needed to figure out how to, uh, support my family. Yeah. Uh, and so I was like, Sell, selling stuff in a parking lot. I don't know if I remember all the details, but I was like, what? So let's, let's go back to, to that. If you're open to it and just sharing, yeah. you know, what, uh, tell us a little bit more about your, your story and your background and some of the things that you've, that have caused you to grow in the ways that you have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, I live in California now. I didn't grow up here. I grew up in, um, uh, Connecticut and, most people, when they think of Connecticut, they think of like super rich um, movie stars where people have their like, you know, uh, summer homes. And there is a lot of that, but there's also just a lot of very normal people. And it's a it's not a great place. I'm, I'm not I don't like to go back, but I grew up in a very, very small town. Um, it was like twelve hundred people pretty much. Um, and when I was eight years old, uh, my mom became diagnosed or misdiagnosed with, uh, Lyme disease. She became very, very, very ill. 
Um, and she went from pretty much having a, an incredible life, being very, very active. Uh, she was an interior designer. My father was an architect. They made a, a badass duo and they you know built houses for some of the biggest names. And um, she went from that life to virtually bedridden overnight due to a, a misdiagnosis and a mistreatment. And mm. around that time, um, my family disbanded for a number of reasons. Um, and at, at that point, it was literally just me and my mom. And I remember being very young at that point and just being like, okay, um, we no longer have really a, a great source of income. She's focusing on completely trying to get herself better and going down all of these avenues. Cause again, at, at this point in time, like her disease was virtually undocumented. Everybody that every doctor that we went to told her she was insane. So she was trying to go down every Avenue she could to actually get better. And mm -hmm. I wanted her to focus on that. And so I did whatever I could to try to figure out how to um, help provide and, and help input at all. So I went to, and unfortunately, uh, being in such a small town, there is not a lot of things to do um, when you're uh, young and even as you get older. Um, so there's a lot of trouble. It's a very, you know, where I'm from in particular, I don't want to say this is all of Connecticut, but where I'm from, it's a very sad area. Um, there's a lot of uh, drugs, there's a lot of crime. And, you know, no one hires a nine year old. So <laughs> you wind up uh, figuring out what you need to do and just trying to to stay afloat. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, I think that is there's something interesting there where there is a level of necessity. And yet you it's just a certain it's a certain type of mature, more mature way of thinking. I imagine there could be other nine year olds in that situation who are like, I don't know what to do. Right. Mom, I don't know. Right. You know, but so yeah. um, do you have a recollection of when you were nine of um, what any sense of why you were predisposed to take responsibility and be willing to do stuff at that age? Were you always that way or did that just kind of kick online um, due to that necessity? I don't know if it necessarily kicked online. I was always super headstrong. I'm sure as, as you've experienced working with me, like I've always just been. I'm very analytical and I, I really assess the things that are going on around me. And another really amazing part of, um, you know, that time in my life is even though I was young, uh, my mom and I had very, very open conversations about everything. Right. And she was, she was, I was treated like an adult and therefore I, you know, looked at certain situations a little bit differently. Mm. Yeah. So what did you do? Small town need, need to help. Support. Small town, um, try to figure out, um, uh, you know, anything I could do to, uh, you know, pay bills, you know, me mixing in and out with a whole bunch of unsavory people. And eventually, uh, I actually, it's funny, I never wanted to be a marketer. I never wanted to do any of the things that I'm doing right now. Um, I wanted to be a pro snowboarder. I started snowboarding when I was right around that age. And um, anything left over, I would pretty much go riding and I became really, really good at it and excelled, um, quickly and wound up, um, snowboarding to, uh, semi-professionally up until the time I was about, um, 14 or not much through the time I was about 18 years old. Um, and so between the things that I was doing just to 
contribute at home, trying to, you know, follow my career uh, in snowboarding. And I thought that was really like going to be like our route out of there. Right. I was going to, you know, make it big at the time. This is before Sean White was huge. This is before like a lot of those really, really common names that you hear about were even publicizes before snowboarding was even in the Olympics. Right. Um, I was like, this is going to be, this is my ticket. And mm-hmm. I put everything into that. Um, and I was competing with people like Sean. I was competing in the do tour. I was competing in Volcom's rail jams and stuff like that. And when I turned 18, um, I was so uh, Connecticut, you don't get to ride year round. Right. And so in the off seasons, we would go and we would train on trampolines. We would do like a whole bunch of like air awareness stuff. And like, you just get used to flipping around and what it's like to be upside down. And, um, we went to do some training. We went skating and this, one of our friends who was away had a, a big, you know, trampoline set up for snow, like professional snowboarders in his backyard. And we were out there and um, I don't know if you've ever been double bounced on a trampoline, right? Like one mm-hmm. of two things happens. You either go flying in the air, like you buckle when you hit the trampoline. I was in the middle of nowhere. Again, really, really small town, um, probably 35, 40 minutes from like any real civilization. And I was jumping so high on the trampoline that I double bounced myself um, and essentially blew my knees out as my my legs hit the trampoline. My femurs, compre- femurs strongest bone in your body, it obliterated everything from my knee down. I threw the backflip and I dislocated my knees on top of that. And from that point on, I, I <laughs> couldn't move and I had ended mm. my snowboarding career. Mm. So literally like that, um, I was rushed to the hospital. I had, um, over the course of the next year, I had six different knee surgeries. Um, and I had lost a lot of hope (laughs) as far as like what I wanted to do and like what was going to be, um, my ticket out of there and what was going to, you know, ultimately, uh, care for my family. Mm. Wow. Wow. So at that time, you know, you're, you're recovering from all these surgeries. Your mom is still sick. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we were at that point still unknown stuff, or at that point was it more under treatment and known? There really was never a, there was really a never a treatment per se. It was a little bit more known um, because it started to become a pandemic essentially where I grew up. Um and so just a little bit of context as to that. So she she had Lyme disease, it was misdiagnosed, um, and they they pumped her full of drugs. And when she was misdiagnosed, it, it showed itself as rheumatoid arthritis. And rheumatoid yeah. arthritis, it's a degenerative disease. There's no cure to it. There's no cure to it. There's just things you can do to stave off the pain and essentially make your quality of life, depending on how you look at it, better. Um, when they, she was misdiagnosed, the rheumatism that was really just in her like elbows and hands at the time spread to every joint in her body. Um, and so it became a, a, essentially a crippling disease where she could barely walk. It was very hard for her to maneuver, couldn't really, you know, get in and out of cars, et cetera. And unfortunately, because it's a degenerative disease, it just gets, as time goes on and you live, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, so at that, at that time, um, she was still sick. She was working on trying to manage it. She luckily at that point was still a little bit more um, mobile around the house than, you know, in, in the later years and, you know, in the years that I've known you. Um, And so she was able to be a, 
somewhat more independent, you know, around the house and we just cared for each other. So she helped me when I couldn't walk and I would, I helped her as soon as I got back on, on a, well, I had a walker like a couple of weeks after uh, <laughs> my surgery. So, wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. So what did you do? So during this time of it's a, you know, loss of function in your body, but it's also, I mean, that's hard for anyone, but then if it's like, this is my, my, my profession, my career is going to be my body. Uh, it, that's a, that's a disorienting rug pull experience. Uh, did you, was it like dark night of the soul and then you emerged? Uh, and if totally. so, what, what, what was the, how did you, what was that process for you? Dude, I felt so broken. <laughs> Like yeah, literally, this, uh, knees are broken. I mean, yeah, yeah, literally and yeah. figuratively, man. Like I, yeah. I was so like, dude. I lived and breathed, and and you know, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast, but I lived and breathed this uh, this sport, and it was everything to me every single day. Um, and I remember actually, it was funny. Well, not funny, but looking back on it now, it's funny. Uh, the 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 day after the accident, so the and essentially the day after the accident, the morning after my first surgery, I'm like sitting in this hospital room, and it was the first snow of the season, so I got to literally sit in there and just watch it snow, and have my doctors come in and be like, "Yeah, you're never doing like at the level you can snow. You'll eventually probably be able to snowboard again, but never at the level that you were doing previously," mm. and um. And it was just, it was very disorienting. I felt um, very alone. Um, I felt like every bit of a plan that I had had just kind of evaporated into the ether. And um, a couple of things happened, right? Like, again, I'm from a very, very small place. Um, and the people where I'm from aren't very happy people. It's not a very happy existence. And so like, the first thing that I started thinking of was like, oh my God, like I'm going to wind up like everybody that I know mm. that's still here. And that was a terrifying thought. Right. Mm. And then the other thing, and it's like, you know, I was young dudes. So I was like eight, again, like 18 years old. So like kids are stupid, but you know, you don't think about it until it's happening, but like, you don't realize that. And it was funny at this point, cause I'd never had this relationship with my mom. I would never, I had never had this kind of, um, similarity i don't know if that's the right word but like when you're in a house and you can't move and you can't be fun and no one comes to visit you right and because it's like what are you going to do to all like you had, you had people pop in periodically but it was like that next year as i was like relearning how to walk it was just a lot of alone time mm. um again stupid kids but um it, i was in also at the time like my first ever like really serious relationship you know like <laughs> like this is gonna and i i was younger like we had been together i was in a sophomore in high school and she was like a sophomore in college right and so i would like go down and see her on the weekends and all of this and like as soon as that fizzled away like i get a call i'm like broken legged in a bed like yeah, i don't think this is gonna work out anymore mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so like you know, I, I can't hang out with my friends. My, my, you know, career is over. Um, my girlfriend just dumped me and I have all, the only thing that I can, I can see is, um, this, uh, what is around me. Right. And, and what was around me at the time just wasn't positive. And I, there was quite some time there that I, I just, 
I was convinced that I was not going to be able to do anything or pull out of this. And I was convinced that like at this point in my life, the best thing or the only thing that I was going to be able to contribute to this world is at some point having a family and being a good father. Like, and that's a crazy thing for like an 18 year old to think. Mm. Right. Um, and I just, I, I can't, you know, it's funny. I, we, we haven't had a conversation in a while, but like, you used to you used to say a phrase to me um, all the time, and it was like a point of decision making. Like you got to get to this point, right, where you make a decision threshold and moment. A, threshold moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, dude, I remember. Um, I'm like your typical entrepreneur, right? Like I was, you know, horrible in school. I didn't do well. It wasn't something I excelled in. I was going to be a professional snowboarder. Snowboarders don't need school. Like I had all of these uh, tutors that would come. My tutors gave up on me. They stopped showing up, dude. Like it was, mm. it was insane. Like I almost, I barely passed high school. And I just remember having this moment of like where everything was going wrong towards the end of my senior year. And I was like, that's it whatever I need to do, mm -hmm. we're fixing this entire situation now. And I just, I, I, I won't get too far into it, dude, but we used to throw when I was younger, younger than we should have been. We used to throw these huge parties, right? We used to have, we used to throw these like what kids would call ragers. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just remember being like, 16, 17. And this, this, this incident that I had kept playing back in my head. And I was at a party that we threw, not 100% sober. And I was sitting on the couch. And again, I'm around like all of these other 16 and 17 year olds. And we're looking at the house, the front door, and these people walk in. I'm like, who are these people? And one of them winds up like sitting down next to me and just having a conversation with me. And it was a dude who was like in his 30s, crashing a high school party. Nice. Living and the dream. Yeah, dude. And like having a conversation to me, like this was the highlight of his day. And I, for, I don't know what it was about that experience, but it stuck with me throughout this entire thing. And I was like, I cannot be this dude. I will not yeah. become this guy. And I will not like, you know, again, the people that I grew up around, like they all, their goal was to wake up or a very blue collar, wake up early, work till four, drunk by six, rinse and repeat pretty much. Yeah. I was like, I, I can't do that. And so at that point, um, I talked with my mom and we picked up and uh, we picked a point on the map and we moved to California. Wow. Wow. I, it's fascinating that, that the guy at the party moment, but I, I feel like there's those, there's those moments. I think for me, I had this moment when I was, um, this was a threshold moment around career, not necessarily confidence uh, because I didn't, I didn't do any development of confidence at that age. I was 15, maybe even 14. It was my first job. And, um, first official job. I'd worked for my dad for a couple of years because no one would hire you younger than that in California. But I found a place that hired me, I think at 14 and a half, it was Long's Drugs. And uh, I remember I worked my, my first day and I was like, so excited to go to work. Like I'm going to be a real adult working. I got a job. Money. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to wear a uniform or whatever, the green shirt. And I get there and they're like, oh, it's your first day. huh? Um, so uh, all right, follow me. You know, like clearly just making it up on the spot. And they're like, okay, there's a there's a jazz festival across the street at those fairgrounds. Some people are gonna try to park in this parking lot. So you need to just hang out in the parking lot, pick up some cart. It's longs. Who freaking uses a cart at like a CVS or longs, right? It's like nobody. So there's a few carts around. Pick those up if you need to. Otherwise, if you see someone parking in this parking lot and walking across the street, you need to tell them not to do that. 
And I'm like a 15 year old kid with a bunch of acne and social anxiety. And I'm like, there is no way I'm going to do that. Like I, <laughs> so I'm just standing in this parking lot in my uniform. And over the course of an eight hour day with a you know, lunch break in there, I see maybe two or three people do this illegal maneuver and I don't confront them at all. And they say, ask me at the end of the day, did you see anybody? No, I didn't see anybody. They must've seen me and driven off. Right. And I remember <laughs> it was that very, very first day. I still worked at Long's for about another two months after that, for that summer. But in that, there was like some freak out moment inside of, and seeing people that had been working at Long's for like 20 years. And I was like, oh my God, like if you don't succeed in career, you get screwed. It's horrendous. And it really scared me. And that was like a major driver for me to be study any amount I needed to study, do whatever I needed to do to create a job and a career that was like varied and stimulating and challenging and interesting and all the stuff that, you know, you both you and I get to do is continue to grow. It freaked the hell out of me. And it was, Otherwise, I remember that one day it was like, it's, it's like these threshold moments can be powerful. You get sucked in, man. I, I went, I went back home for the first time in over a decade last year. And the people that I knew back then are still there doing the same thing I was doing before I left. Rinse and repeat. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, you you got you got the the ambition drive. So, uh, throw a dart onto the map. Go to California. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, so my uh, mom. <laughs> new 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 uh new chapter. Yeah, exactly, man. It was an, and it was an interesting chapter, man. Um, we uh we wanted to move to California, and we couldn't afford anything above Oceanside. If you guys, if anybody knows Oceanside, you'll understand what I'm about to say. We couldn't afford anything above Oceanside or below Oceanside. So, so like Oceanside, it was. And we we moved there. It was um a really again, it was a really rough area, and uh, we didn't have a place. Actually, funny funny tidbit. Um, if you ever remember the show Rocket Power from when you were younger, like there was like a cartoon for kids back in the day. The entire show was based around Oceanside. So like nice. that um. But uh, so we moved there, didn't have a place to stay, lived in like um, a Motel 6 for uh, four to six months until we kind of like got on our feet. Um, and I found I was able to kind of find a job and, and, you know, get into it. And we found a house. And that was the that was the real beginning of my sales career before before marketing. Yeah. Yeah. So tell, tell me a bit more about that. You got into sales. Was it something that you had any draw or previous experience with, or you were just like, Hey, I'll learn something. Um, so again, like at, the, at this point, um, no snowboarding was like, you know, I have to figure out how to make something of myself. And I was still, I'll be honest with you. Like I still, I, I don't want to like, I don't want to like, like, I want to be very, clear. I don't want to belittle anybody's ambitions. Like still, I still had like very, I still had very average ambitions. Like I thought my entire life was just going to be like one day I'll make enough to buy a house, have a family and like, that's it. Right. And like, I was still kind of operating on, on that mentality. And I, uh, I got into sales because previously, like before snowboarding, like all the stuff that I used to do for whomever I worked with at the time, it was all sales in one way or another. And I was really, really good at talking with people. And I was really, really good at con like, you know, um, conversing. And so I just, I, I knew I could make a connection and make an offer. And so that was just kind of like the logical next step. And like, it, it bounced around, um, quite a bit. Like I started just doing these, um, 
ad hoc sales like uh, gigs where I get hired by like Verizon for a weekend or whatever. And they'd send me out to like Indy 500 to like stand in the pit. And all I do is just wear a Verizon shirt and talk to everybody that walked by and try to like sell them a phone plan. Mm. <laughs> um, it was horrible. It was that's literally a, that's a high rejection uh, <laughs> uh, station right there. 100%. Like my goal, my goal at that point, point was like just to get told to piss off as much as possible (laughs) um and then uh, i wound up pleasant uh it was a pleasant relief (laughs) yeah um and then i wound up getting into um i wound up getting into network marketing at uh probably 19 or so um and that honestly like you know say what you will about network marketing or anybody who's been through that kind of experience it's very polarizing it's either a very positive experience for people or it's a very negative experience for people um it hands down changed the trajectory of my life 100 and i'll i'll unpack that a little bit more but essentially i was working for the company if anybody knows anything about network marketing it's pretty much about who how much you can sell and who you can enroll and we were doing everything under the sun to like sell the at this time it was like energy drinks and like you know sports food and medicine and stuff like that and um we had mentors it was like my first time ever actually getting a mentor and they were teaching us like every antiquated marketing technique in the world like hey you're gonna go knock on doors you're gonna fly or you're gonna go to trade shows you're gonna do all of this stuff and um most people, it doesn't work. Uh, I wound up putting a team of like 15 people together around the country. And um, we wound up getting to about a million a month in revenue for the company uh, by the time I was like 20 years old. Hmm. And how did you assemble cool. that team? Did you know those people? So it, it happened It happened to be... Um, so yes, there were certain people that I knew and there were certain people that I was introduced to. So I kind of had a... It was a good experience because as I was leaving my home at Connecticut, right? Every I was 18. So everybody was going off to college, right? So I knew people from high school that had gone off to college mm. and they were my connections to people in those areas pretty much. Mm. Um, and I just, I hit them all up and was like talking to them about certain stuff. And, but so we were doing really good for the company. If you know anything about those companies, even if you're doing really well by them, they're not paying you very much. Yeah. You got to get <laughs> um, more people downstream. That's what you got to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wealth. Exactly. And so at that at one point, man, I was like, I had teams all around the country and I was like flying from college to college and like giving these presentations and trying to get people to buy stuff, dude. And I was exhausted. I was exhausted. And, um, that pretty much became my first foray into marketing. And I was like, look, I'm tired of chasing people down. There's got to be a better way to bring them to me. And I became obsessed with figuring out how to crack that code. Um, But the thing that really changed my life more than anything was the introduction of the idea of mentorship and reading believe it or not like I, I again i was a kid who never did well in high school i hated to read it was not something that was exciting for me mm. and i remember the first book that i ever got told i got i literally got handed to it and i was told shut up and read this and i was like okay okay <laughs> and it was uh it was think and grow rich by napoleon hill and that was the, oh, that's the entrepreneur's bible right there literally it was one of it was one of the very very first books i ever read and i said damn thoughts become things and there were so there were so there were so many things in that book and the struggle that he went through that resonated with my journey up into that point and I said like damn maybe I can do this and that was like when I my 
outlook on life really started to to shift. And it wasn't necessarily the company. It wasn't the offer. It wasn't what I was doing. It wasn't, it was just my perception of what was possible changed at that point. Yeah. 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 Well, you expanded the, you know, the default horizon from the environment where you grew up you started to input yeah. new, I mean, you were already inputting new stuff by moving and all that, but then you start bringing in mentors, uh, books, which are another, it's a access to a, a, a very books are limited access to a mentor is what they are. 100%. And what's, what's so funny, man is like, and I never thought like, as you get older, hindsight's twenty twenty, And it's like, you realize things that you did and you realize like important lessons or like things that might be cliche. It's like, you know, your problems follow you wherever you go. Right. Like mm. that's like one of those big cliches. And it's so funny to look back on it because like, you're right. I had new inputs when I moved to a new place, but when I moved to a new place, when I first got to California, I found people that were just like the people that I was moving away from in Connecticut. Mm. Right. And it was very, very interesting. And it wasn't until that, like, I really changed this perspective that I was able to put myself in better rooms. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that you did then and continue to do, right? Is to immerse. And so you, uh, the way that you found to do marketing in a more efficient way was to go online, right? I failed miserably. Online? (laughs) I failed so bad in the beginning. Um, Yeah, that was, that was pretty much it. Um, I, I became, no one was doing anything online. Like, um, yeah. What, what year was this? This was 2012, 2013-ish, right? So like this is when like Instagram had just started. Like yeah. I remember going to the skate park at that time, be like, yo, do you have Instagram? And I'm like, are you, what are you trying to buy weed for me? Like, what are you like, what are you doing? What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and no. And so it was it was a very, very new time. Like the it, social media was still kind of like bubbling. Facebook wasn't uh, hadn't gone through like Cambridge. Have they even like, uh, they even gone public yet at that point? I don't even think so. They did yeah. they certainly hadn't had the the struggles that they had had in the in the you know following years, but yeah. Um yeah, because so they weren't I, even doing much. Like ads on Facebook wasn't a thing. It was. As, I ran my first. It, it was ad a thing. On, okay, I didn't know. But no one. I know, knew I know how it became to do more it. of a thing when they went public, and it was like, you better make some more money. So, but no one knew how to do it. That was the beautiful part. You could, you could, like, you could get everything wrong and still make money on Facebook, and then somehow I still didn't. So, uh, <laughs> um, so uh, funny, funny story. So, um. I had at the time, um, the company that I was working with, uh, they were building the company in a way that I just didn't really resonate with. And I, I, um, was friends with, you know, me, man, like everything, if I have to learn something, I'm going to read everything about it to the point where like all of our competitors, I read their user manual for every one of our competitors. Like I read the FTC and the, um, uh, uh, direct sales associations guidelines for like what a proper company looks like. And um, it just was getting built in a way that was really um, weird to me. And I was friends with a lot of the people in the company that were, you know, the top 50 income earners. I had conversations with them and and they would pretty much just tell me like, hey, shut up. It's working. Like, let's, you know, keep doing what we're doing. And I was like, okay, if, if this is going to be the sentiment, I need to figure out how to do something else. And one of them who would listen to me, because at the time I wasn't making a whole ton of money, like granted is making probably more than the average 20 or I'm sorry, um, 19 year old, but it still wasn't like anything to write home about. And so I remember I got my, I heard about my first, um, my first mastermind actually. And it was like, 
seven grand to get in. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't afford it on my, on my own. So I went to one of my mentors and said, look, we're going to do this. We're, you know, we're going to do it together. Like if you, if you foot the bill for me to get into this program, um, you know, I'll throw myself into it. I'll learn everything we need to do and I'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make it back. And I did uh program what wound up being horrible. <laughs> No, no. program wound up being horrible. Um, I wasted a whole bunch of money on that program. I wasted a whole bunch of money just trying to run ads and running, trying to just do things. And like, this is the first time I ever had lead. I got lead pages back in the day. Um, and, uh, it just didn't pan out, but I was, I was, I was hooked and I like, I was, I wanted to make this work. And eventually I just kept studying like every day, morning to night, just studying and trying to get better at this and immersing myself in it. And um, I got to a point where there was a time in, um, it's funny, this is like my, this is like my first big win. Uh, There was a time in like 20, I don't know, probably 2013, maybe early 2014, where print on demand shirts were huge, right? And you could... Facebook hadn't quite changed all of their algorithms or the way that that, that you're able to advertise on their platform. And they didn't even have like a very robust platform to begin with, but they had this thing called grid search. And so it was like, you could go into Facebook and type in like, give me people around the country with this last name. And um, there was a guy who I met who wrote this code and it would scrape all of those names in their Facebook accounts and you could upload them into custom audiences. And I'm talking ridiculous right now, but just bear with me. You could put them into custom audiences and you could advertise to them. And so what I did was I started getting people's last names like, um, uh, you know, Gazapura even, right? And finding every person in the country with the last name Gazapura. And I would go to this print on demand company and I would make a shirt that says, I'm not crazy, it's a Gazapura thing. Right. And I would market those shirts to everybody with that last name and people would buy them by like the 25 pack for like family, (laughs) share with the family, family reunions and stuff like that. And like, I remember my, that was like my first ever like printing money experience. And I went from, you know, no income because I had like pretty much stopped working with that company I was working with to overnight, like thousands of dollars in my bank account. And I, paid off, paid back my mentor who up until that point had been really angry with me um, and paid him back. And I started to really dive into this, finally paid off all my debts, paid back um, people that, you know, had invested in me and then um, started to actually kind of put some money away. And then Facebook changed everything and you could no longer advertise or target by last name and you couldn't do POD. So I, again, was back to square one. <laughs> mhm mm-hmm. which is i mean that's that's another interesting thing that i I've, I've seen in the time just the year and a half two years that we worked together you know the landscape's always changing and there's a level of adaptability and that's you know that's that's not just on internet platforms uh that's for all business really right because especially yeah. smaller businesses or people's practices or you know maybe like a a giant company can kind of weather the the tide longer, but they're still going to get disrupted and die. Like I was listening to this really interesting um, information about uh, Tesla and their gigafactory and how that cut costs and how far ahead they are over sort of major car manufacturers for electric vehicles. And it's like, well, those companies, it's the classic story of they had the 
two decade head start and didn't do shit and then or very minimal uh, yep. and then the you know the disruptor comes in so um i feel like every industry but i think generally people are risk averse and they're scared and they don't like the change and then they just label it as bad um but there's a way that you are uh more so forward thinking and on offense it seems every time i talk to you so what's your mentality about about that when it comes to business and life about how you know how do you address change um so it's a good question. My offensiveness in life stems from a number of things, right? Like, and I, I think you can agree. We've had conversations about this, right? Like, I don't think that anything that's ever been achieved that's great has been achieved by staying within your comfort zone. And that was something that I became very aware of, um, and there were, there were mantras. Like, I know it sounds so cliche, but there were things that I would always just tell myself. And like, one of them was like, everything that you want in life is on the other side of your comfort zone. Right. And that was a huge driving factor, um, in, in my choice to just go out and try things. And what I found was I, I was not a very comp, like when I was younger, I was not a very confident person, right? Like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to paint that picture. Like I've just been confident this into like this entire, my entire life. Like what gave me, what gave me confidence was going out, trying, failing, reviewing my like process, trying it again, getting a little bit better and being, and, and having that like noticeable, I'm a data guy, right? It's like when the input, when the data comes back and it's better than the first time, like that's a promising trend. And then I go out and I do it again. And I try something a little bit different. Like that was, that was huge for me. And so a part of me became obsessed with trying things out and failing and just being able to self-analyze why I thought I failed and the, and, and going out and trying it again. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it becomes, it becomes addicting to be honest with you. Like it becomes like, and then, and then it, you realize after doing it enough that everything in life, like ev everything in business, everything in life is just you trying something new. And the faster you can get okay with the idea that it's most of the time not going to work out, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. the, the better and the more you can kind of hold on to like all of my losses are very minuscule to all of the wins that have come out of just trying. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's been a, that's been a huge reason um, that I've, I've continued down that path. And then the two other things is just honestly, my, my mom, right. Like from a very young age, I was faced with, um, I feel like kids think they're invincible. And there was a, there was this moment of like overwhelming mortality Mm -hmm. when I re when I was very, very young and I was like, and, and, um, you're familiar with like the, the term memento mori. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that, like that's something I, I tell myself all the time. Got one of these on my desk. Really? really. Literally. I'm about <laughs> to get it. it. I'm, I'm waiting to get my, my sleeve done. It's going to be like a memento mori tribute. Right. Nice. Because like, and, and, and for those of you, it's essentially the reminder that you will die one day. And it's like, what do you, what do you want to have been your contribution in life? And what do you like, there's nothing more, there's nothing more motivating to me than the fact that like, I have a finite amount of time to be here. 
Yeah. Yeah. Man, there's so much, so much in there. And I think that, <laughs> um, that healthy urgency of, of mortality and not living in denial of that. And then uh, that is the only way to learn. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, cause especially the work that I do about helping people apply that, uh, teaching of what you want is on the other side of your comfort zone. They're like, okay, but do I, do I have to go through that? <laughs> it's like, yes, yes, you do. Let's talk about how we can help you. Right. Do that. But, um, there's a, there's a desire, especially in the information age, if we're still in that, I don't know what, or maybe we're in the next age, <laughs> the, 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 uh, but, uh, the AI age. Yeah. Maybe we're at, we're at, we're at, we're at, we were at peak information age and now we're going into super intelligence age, but you know, there's this illusion that if I can just watch a video or I'll learn about it and then I know it. And it's like the only real learning is through doing like you can, you can start with a mentor or an idea. Um, but then it's going to be, cause there's so much distinction that you're processing and getting not even consciously you're, you, you will connect a few dots consciously, but the rest of your brilliance is going to be just like figuring it out through repetition, through doing and through that failing. Place. Yeah. Yeah. That's the only way. So then, and then, so then the question is, well, how how fast and how much can you do it because if that's how you're going to learn that's like how many it's not how many books did you read it's how many attempts did you make because that's going to be the thing that really accelerates the 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 learning and then therefore the confidence too and i think the biggest pitfall for people is the that fear of failure and what it means about me oh my gosh it means that it's some old story um about you know so what what is your perspective on Let's say you do try something and it doesn't work and doesn't work for you or doesn't work for one of your clients or someone is upset or maybe you're worried that someone's going to get upset. Like, how do you perceive that outcome? Um, so I think that there is multiple things in there. Like you just asked a couple of questions in one, right? Like I think the things that I do with my clients, I analyze a certain way, the things that I analyze or the things that I have, or like the difficult conversations or how I'm perceived, I analyze in a certain way. And I think like things that I want to try that are kind of like uncharted territory, I perceive in a different way. So like in reverse order, like the things that I, it's funny. I, I did a, I did a module for my mastermind on this a long time ago. And it was like the things that I want to try that are uncharted territory. I pretty much go in with this expectation that nine times out of 10, it's not going to go the way that I want. And I'm going to be happy if it goes the way one time. Right. Mm. And that, that one time, and, and again, it's detaching yourself from the outcome, right? If it doesn't go the way that I wanted it to, it's not because I suck or because I didn't do a good enough job. It's like, okay, I'm working with the greatest available capacity that I have, the greatest amount of knowledge that I have. And the only way for me to expand that is to go out and try. And then based on me trying, I'm going to have a better understanding of the landscape and then I can make a better decision the next time. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's how like, I, I, I just go into it thinking like, it's probably not going to work. And if it does, like, yeah, let's go. Um, uh, conversations with people. I have always been one of like, there was another instance in my life and um, it was really interesting to me. And it was like, I, I had this kind of, 
so in, in sales, so fast forward, you know, the marketing, I couldn't make it work. I was, I, I wound up becoming a, um, a salesperson for a fitness company, fitness international. They own like LA fitness and a sport and all of them. And I wound up becoming a VP for them. But in the process of doing that, I remember, um, I had this really, uh, rare experience where I was able to, I did the math on it. Like over the course of a couple of years, I had over 7,500 conversations with people about their life and about their goals and about like everything they wanted. And I just remember that there was this moment where I sat back and there was this like overwhelming, there was this overwhelming realization that so many people just speak to hear themselves talk and that they're like monologuing with themselves pretty much. Mm. And I realized that like at that point, the only conversations or the only things that had ever really changed my life in a, in a way that was positive were the conversations that I had perceived as difficult ones to have. And at that point, I said, I, I, I put so much more weight on those difficult conversations and the ones that like I thought people would perceive me in a weird way. Right. Mm -hmm. And and those were like, I, I didn't, I no longer wanted to just have conversations for the sake of having them. And if you asked me my opinion, I was going to give you what I actually thought about it, regardless of how you, how it made you feel. Um, and that was a, an interesting, an interesting kind of turning point in my life. Um, and then just like, you know, like the, the normal aspect of having conversations and like being judged based on, on the things that you say, or like what your interests are is like, this may not be the answer um, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are looking for, but like my circle is, I, I made this joke with you one time, like my circle is so small that like I almost cut myself out, right? Like I am not somebody who who is constantly out there trying to look to expand my friend group or like find new friends. Like I really want quality people in my life. And so most of the time when somebody judges you for an idea or judges you for something that you do or something that you're interested in, it's, they're just not a great fit for you. Right. And they're just not a great fit for what you want to achieve out of life. And someone, one of my early mentors told me like, look, if that person doesn't have what you want, then you shouldn't take, like, there's no sense in taking advice for them or taking the opinions of them very seriously. Right. And I don't mean that just from like a financial standpoint, but just like a lifestyle standpoint, like the things like, you know, if you love video games and you're talking to people that think video games are stupid, like it's, you're kind of just setting yourself up to, to be hurt. Right. Mm -hmm. So I try to find groups of people that I'm going to resonate with. And then when it comes to like clients, it's very, it's very tactical. Um, but I tell them all the time, like, look, we're going to try new stuff. The, the landscape changes all the time. And I'll be honest with you, man, in the beginning, um, in the very, very beginning, when I started my agency, I had a really good skill set. But to your point, knowing how to do something and applying it to wildly different things. Mm -hmm. And I remember I used to, um, I would sign contracts and I would get, uh, you know, clients and they would want me to do something for them. And I wouldn't 100%, like it wasn't what I signed the contract for, but they'd want me to like look into doing something else for them. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't what I normally did. So I'd take all of the money that they gave me and I'd go out and I'd buy a mentorship or I'd go out and I'd buy an mm -hmm. apprentice for that specific skill. I'd learn it in like a week and then I'd go apply it and they'd be so happy that, you know, 
we would continue. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a that's a that's a whole other mentality that's less purely linear transactional, right? Well, I'm gonna do this thing for this person because they did this versus uh more seeing client all your clients as a collective, right? So if I get better here, I can help that one. And then this one's giving me any money. And that's kind of how I think about sometimes I have you know, different offerings at different levels. And so this, sometimes I think, okay, this one-on-one -on -one client is actually funding my ability to go do this other, like my, totally. my podcast. They're like a, uh, what were they? Maybe, I think they weren't called sponsors. Back in the day when you'd have like a hermit living on your land as a nobility and they would be like painting. You know what <laughs> I'm talking about? They were like, there's a name for that where you basically, the wealthy would support the creation of something. Yes. yes. Yeah. I forget what it's called, but yeah, yeah. no, I know. Like exactly it, but it's something, about. it feels like that. It's like, I don't see it as one client over here. It's almost like there's a collective of people that I'm here to help and we're, everyone's pitching in, in their own way. Yep. And, and I'm, but I'm going to keep growing to, to meet that capacity or give. And I definitely hear you thinking in that more, I guess, transpersonal way. I'm just trying to grow every day, man. Like if I if I go to sleep better than I woke up, it was a good day. Yeah, nice. What would you say is something on your growth edge now? It could be anything, professional, personal, that that maybe is a little bit like, ooh, shit, <laughs> spooks you a little, or is un the uncomfortable um, in your in your life? Something on my growth edge that's uncomfortable. So define growth edge for me, like something that I'm just working on. Outside of your that's comfort zone or that that's where you don't know or you're not good at it or you might make mistakes, you might fail or it's uncomfortable, feels risky, any of those. Um, God, there's a, there's a lot, man. Like, you know, I just bought a house in a down market. <laughs> like, that was pretty scary. Yeah. But, uh, but, um, <laughs> no, uh, variable interest rate. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, really, so that's, that's a good question. I gotta, I gotta kind of think about that for a second. I think, um, I think there's a few things happening right now. Um, and one of them is, is a, and I was talking with you about this, um, a couple months, like a month or so ago, but like I'm in the process of restructuring, uh, how we operate as an agency. Um, and that is a very scary thing that I'm still trying to kind of navigate in and of myself, because it's like, you know, everything on paper, so this is like the idea versus application thing, like everything on paper for what I'm proposing sounds perfect. But if it's not, I'm screwed and I have quite a huge payroll that I need to adhere to to keep people like I, I have people that depend on me, people who pay for their families and people who um, and so it's like juggling juggling that transition right now is very, very interesting of like, you know, taking our old clients and phasing certain ones out while phasing new ones in and, you know, you know, implementing this new process that's still getting kind of vetted. Um, that is definitely um uh, something that I'm, I'm working on and that's been, been stressful, but I, I live for that stuff, man. Like it, like it keeps me up at night, but in the best way possible, because it's mm. like I, the more that I'm, the more that I'm thinking about it, the more that I'm working on it and I'm putting steps in. And then the other thing is, um, I'm in the process of, uh, developing a software and I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> 
<laughs> so like I've just been high I've been you know I have I have a really really good team um with me and they're kind of helping me lead me through the right areas and I'm providing my expertise and my feedback but it's a lot of time and a lot of money invested for something that hopefully works and it may not yeah yeah well I think I feel like that's the essence of the risk right it's something that I oh. hopefully and it may not, or it may work on iteration four. And I, oh, and I don't know what even know what I'm on. So I, I don't even know when I'm going to hit, but um, I, call, I call them the moon shots, right? Like you got to have yeah. a couple of moon shots in your bag at all times. Like, you know, this, this one thing might retire me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's Ethereum. No, but uh, <laughs> I, I love it, man. And um, yeah. I, I know. And that's in my, I, that's, you were aware of what I was doing a, a restructuring last year. And scary, scary to like melt down structures and then know it's like, well, this works. You're saying you don't want, you don't want to do it anymore. Well, yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, so it's, yeah, stepping into untested, but um, man, on the other side of that, I'd say um, there's just so much that unlocks. And I don't think it's just about the new version of a business but it unlocks a new version of you too. Oh, totally. Um, totally. Yeah. So man, I feel like we could go on for a whole other hour. There's more I want to ask. And I, I actually scheduled this interview before I have another call. So unfortunately uh, we're gonna have to pause this, but as you said in the beginning, there might be a part two. And I Absolutely. feel like there's a, there's a so much depth and richness there to, to really look into the nuance of like all these mindsets and how you approach life. Yeah. I would, I would absolutely love to. Yeah. Well, dude, so I don't even know if, you know, people listening would be clientele or anything, but I just, I actually had someone ask me like, who did your website? Which is speaking of something that wasn't what I hired you for, but like, <laughs> by the way, can you guys build all this stuff? And you're like, okay. You know? So um, anyway, uh, they, someone asked me and I was like, oh, it was Nick, you know, it was Nick and his team. So I'm not sure if people are in the market for this, but I think it's great. If people want to find out about you, what you do um, and, and learn more, where, where can they go? Um, they can, uh, go to our website. So Vanguard marketing group, uh, .com. We also, we have .com and .net. Um, and, uh, if you want to, um, as you know, I'm a super open person. So if you want to just schedule a call with me personally, you can shoot me an email, um, at Nick at Vanguard marketing group.com. Wow. Yeah. Take him up on that. <laughs> awesome. Ask Absolutely. him about his trip in Thailand. No, no, <laughs> that's it. They'll save that for part two. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 part two. Seriously, we'll we'll have to do this again. I would love to explore um some more around like the nuance and the and the the thought process. I think we just kind of scratched the surface today. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh out about rule number one in marketing, but one of the one of the <laughs> top five golden keys, right, is leave them wanting more. Yep. Open the loop. Yeah. Awesome. All right, brother, a pleasure, man, to speak with you. Thank you so much and uh, look forward to more. Always. Talk soon, brother. Thanks for listening to Shrink for the Shy Guy with Dr. Aziz. If you know anyone who can benefit from what you've just heard, please let them know and send them a link to shrinkfortheshyguy.com. For free blogs, ebooks, and training videos related to overcoming shyness and increasing confidence, go to socialconfidencecenter.com.